And we are back with 101. Today, the episode is sponsored by, and thank you so much for listening to that. My guest today, Mike Kozlenko, really good friend of mine. We go way, way back, childhood friends. He is a professional cinematographer, DP, director of photography, based in Austin, Texas. And he joins me on the podcast today where we talk a lot of film and we talk a lot of other things as well. Um, Anything and everything. So here we go, guys. Mike Kozlenko. back in studio with the one and only Mike Kozlenko. What's going on, dude? Uh, Not much. Just uh, hanging out here in... Uh, Sunny in, Florida. In Florida, which is a place I'll be glad to soon be departing from. Yeah, because you live in Austin. I live in Austin, Texas. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm from Florida. I... Uh, was raised here, but I moved from Florida because I got sick of it, and it's not that cool, you know. Well, certain parts of Florida aren't cool, and right from the like from the north to the south, there's like that whole area, and everything in between is not cool. Well, and be- well, because you lived in Tallahassee for well, a little while. I lived in Tallahassee for like five years. Well, I went to school, and then I lived there for a year after school. Yeah. Um. So I, I was, yeah, I was, I got the wide gamut of four Floridian experiences because being in Palm Coast and then, you know, going to Orlando sometimes and Orlando is just awful. Um, and uh, Jacksonville, nothing good ever happens in Jacksonville. Um, as you can see, I'm uh, not opinionated at all. <laughs> uh, and then Miami. No good. My, you know, my sister uh, used to live there, so I'd spend some time in South Florida. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I've been, I, I've spent some time in various parts of Florida, and it's like, all right, I'm out. Yeah, you're out. You're straight to Texas, and and yeah. Texas is uh, pretty cool. Yeah. So, the, well, where I'm at in Austin, it's uh, it's like the least Texas part of Texas. It's like there's a bunch of freaking hipsters and but there's also like some lots of tech firms and there's like um, a cool vibe, lots of young people. There's coffee shops. Which you're breweries. big on. You yeah. love coffee shops. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not if not if I'm not working, like if I'm not I'm I'm a director of photography. Um, I'm a freelance director of photography. Which uh, we're gonna talk about. Um that's that's what I do full-time uh when i'm not like on set i'm usually at just at a coffee shop just kind of working sending emails things like that so austin's uh pretty good for that yeah what what's up Uh, all right cool all right all right so um We'll do a take two because we didn't get that far in. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't get that far in. 
And just like that, we're back live in studio. Mike Kozlenko, good good friend. Known you for a long time, dude. Uh, yeah. Long yeah. ass time, dude. Yeah. We go way back. Many years. Many many years back when you were playing basketball, and you thought that was going to be your your career. I thought I was going to be an NBA player. Uh, little did I know, you have to be really good. I was like the opposite of that. I I was like what people would call bad at basketball. So it was <laughs> kind of heartbreaking when I realized I was never gonna amount to even a Division three college basketball player. I just was not good. Um, but whatever, I'm 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 past that. I'm not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, you were really good. I like I I definitely remember the day you were uh telling me that, you know, maybe I don't think this is the way I want to go and I was like, "What?" Like it, like literally, I would come over to your house, we would hang out, and that's all we would do. We would just play basketball. Even if I didn't want to. <laughs> I just felt like I had to. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I kind of knew, I mean, I don't know if I was really good. I just kind of you know, when you would look at me, it's like, okay, like, he knows how to play basketball. I think that that you might have sort of, like, thought, okay, like, you know, he looks what he, like, he knows what he's doing. But you put me in the game, I'm missing shots left and right, I'm losing the ball, I'm passing to the other team, and uh, I can't play defense. I, I was a pretty good shooter. Um, I was pretty good at shooting, um, unless I was in a game. <laughs> so the pressure of the game. It wasn't even pressure. I just... I mean, I guess maybe like deep down, like I wasn't like like oh, hyperventilating. Oh, I'm in the game. Like I have to make this shot. I just, you know, when uh, I mean, I guess uh, now in retrospect, now that I'm thinking about it. I guess it was the pressure because when you get put in the game and the teammates are counting on you and you're expected to perform, um, I just didn't. <laughs> uh, and then I was like. Man, you know they, you know they, uh, they could probably just do without me on the team. Yeah, and they definitely, and they definitely did. I quit basketball, and then I started uh, filmmaking. Filmmaking, and that's what you do full time, professional. Yeah, I'm a full time uh, like freelance director of photography in Austin, Texas. Yep. So, and you've done that for a few years. Yes. So, yeah, I graduated college from Florida State University in 2017. And I stuck around in Tallahassee and did did a freelance thing for like a year there. Um, And then I moved to Austin. So I've been in Austin for uh, over a year and a half now. Um, So I'm still kind of like a a baby Texan. And it's cool because like... I think we talked about this. You you have these hubs of filmmaking, and Texas is. Would you say it's like definitely one of the the go to places when it comes to, even if it's not like major motion pictures. Just if you want to be a filmmaker, go to Texas. Um. Well, there is that element. Like it's definitely. I mean, for me, just being in a a market where. There is a market, you know, in the first place. There's not much here in Florida for filmmakers. Like, you know, there's not a whole lot going on. And, um, you know, Tampa has a pretty decent film scene. But some of the other cities, like uh, Jacksonville and 
um, really, you know, St. Augustine, Daytona, they don't really have anything. And there's no real, like, you know, production companies that are based out of here. Some movies shoot here, but, you know, those are companies out of L.A. and New York that come and shoot in Daytona Beach or whatnot. Or, um, or you'll get the occasional deal or no deal filming at Universal. Yeah, and there's some stuff that gets filmed in Orlando, like some commercials and things like that, but it's that's not really a big hub, and it's just hard. There's not that many filmmakers here. Now, when you go to someplace where I'm at, like in Austin, Texas, like there's a whole community of filmmakers, um, ra- you know, with a vast range of skill sets and experiences, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not as... Uh, sort of widespread as a place like LA or New York, but it's more tight knit, you know, there's less uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, internal battles between people trying to get jobs uh, because in Austin, it's a small community of filmmakers. It's very insular. Mm -hmm. So everybody kind of gets along generally speaking. And, you know, Dallas is right around the corner. Dallas is a heavy production scene like there's a lot of really good production companies there's a lot of shows and movies that are filmed in that area um you got what robert rodriguez is big he's in austin he's a texan yeah he filmed his recent movie elite battle battle angel at a studio like right down the street from where i live um and it was uh crazy because i think they're also next to a rental house that sometimes uh you know, shoot on shoot some on like they'll rent from this rental house that is next to the studio that he was filming at. And they were talking about like, Oh, you know, James Cameron is, uh, is here today. Uh, he, I think he was a executive producer. Yeah. Of yep. Alita. Mm-hmm. So like he was hanging out on set. Um, Jeez. that's pretty interesting. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Dude. Cause what you also got, uh, uh, uh Richard Linklater. Linklater is, is big in Texas. Big in Texas, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like if he can, he shoots there. He lives in Austin, and uh, yeah, he Richard Linklater is kind of a, the big. So there is Richard Linklater started the um, Austin Film Society. So that is a place where they have movie screenings. There's a movie that they call the Link. Okay, a, a, not a movie. There's a movie theater that's uh-huh. called the Link. Um, and yeah, he's like revered as like, you know the godfather of Austin filmmaking. And my friend uh, almost ran him over uh, with his car. Uh, so he was he was telling me about this. Okay. He was, he was driving downtown, and Linklater was uh, on a bike. And my friend was driving, and he was just doing his thing, and uh, a bike just, just whooshes into the road. Okay. And, uh, you know, he, like, pull, stops on his brakes real quick. And he looks up, and it's Richard Linklater. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, I almost ran him over. I almost ran over Richard Linklater. Well, see, the thing with Richard Linklater is you have to be a filmmaker to know who he is. For sure. You're not going to almost run into Richard Linklater as a, you know what I mean, as like yeah. a normal human and right. go, oh, my God, wait, you're the guy that did the Before Trilogy. Yeah. You're the director of Boyhood. Yeah. Yeah, no. He's not like, he's not this filmmaker that is is widely known in the right. public. He can probably go into a Starbucks and no one knows who the hell he is. Unless he's in Austin. Unless he's in Austin. Yeah. And then they got like framed murals of, they even have a drink called the Link Later. Do they? No. Oh, okay. I, 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 I'm sure they do. Wouldn't be surprised if they did. I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely he he does a lot of yeah. He's pretty active in the Austin film community as far as like I don't know. He's at screenings and like they did a screening of like you know one of the before films and he was at it and they did a Q and A. This was a few months ago and it's not. It wasn't even like that big of a thing. It's just kind of like something he does every now and then. So damn. Um, and then have you seen the before films? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen all of them. They're so good. I like them a lot. I, I yeah. love the second one. The second one is, I think, the strongest. Because the second one? The second one because the first one, what, they, they, it's really about a chance encounter meeting, and then they spend the night together, and they go their mm-hmm. separate ways. The second one I like because it's something that a lot of people can relate to, where you had someone in your life, and you had a connection, and for some reason or another, they go their separate way, and you're always wondering what what if, like, what if I had another chance with that person and that movie explores yeah. it? And then the third way. one is about, you know, marriage. Yeah. It's about marriage. It's a good way to look at it. Um, but the second one is the one I relate to the most. And the way it ends where she's like, I, like, aren't you going to miss your plane or something or something like that? Oh, and, and, yeah. like, and she's like, yeah, it's okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. Such yeah. a good ending. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but just now thinking about it. Yeah. That was quite good. Yep. I, yeah, when you put it in that perspective, like, yeah, I'm trying to think of which one of mine is the favorite. I would say, I don't know, I like the first one. Sunrise? Uh, yeah, I like I like Before Sunrise. I just thought that was uh, so unique of a concept, like, and just showing the, I don't know, youthful naivety and uh, just, they, I th- thought they captured that so well. and yeah. Uh, it's it's my favorite trilogy yeah. of all time. Oh, I don't know if you knew that or not. I mean, that's that's a pretty bold statement. The, yeah, the uh, before trilogy. I feel like not many people would say that because, like, definitely not. Come on, the Dark Knight, and Dark Knight, Star Wars, Toy Story, Toy Star Story. Wars. Well, yeah. Well, now Toy Story four, but whatever. I haven't seen that. No, me neither. I want to. I almost refuse to. I want to refuse to, <laughs> but there's a lot of things I want to refuse that I end up doing anyway. So, <laughs> um. But dude, that's so cool. Yeah, so so just to kind of backtrack here for everyone listening, um, like you know, we've known each other years, and um, you know, like I said, I thought you were gonna be a basketball player. That didn't work out. Uh, and then you, I don't know if this was the Kickstarter, and you can tell me, um, but I have a vivid memory of us watching Duel by Steven Spielberg, and I feel like, and you can you can confirm this or not. I feel as though that was maybe a seed, if not the seed, but maybe one of the seeds where, because like I feel like after that movie, the way my memory works, I feel like after that movie was when the stuff started happening where you were more interested in doing not basketball. Do you yeah. agree? Like that? Like what? Like was it Duel or like? So I mean, Duel was definitely. I think the gears started turning a little bit before then. Okay. Uh, I think Duel actually made me. That was one of the movies where it further solidified, in my mind, the idea of the craft of filmmaking and what it is. Because, you know, just some of the effect sequences that they did at the end of the film, just you know, the fact that it was done in seventies. Is that it? Yeah, it's a seventies yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, holy cannoli! And, you know, this is a movie that you know people wouldn't know this of Spiel. You know, like. A Spielberg film? What? Like in his twenties, he was like early twenties doing that. Yeah, no, that was definitely a movie. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, 
kind of, yeah, brought awareness, made me aware of the the craft of filmmaking a little bit more. But the very first film that I sort of, I don't know, when when the credits started rolling and I was like, wow, like that was such an incredible accomplishment. I can't even like begin to describe like what it must feel like to be a part of something like this was The Dark Knight. Because I watched that in theaters, and as soon as, like, you know, Hans Zimmer's theme at the end started, uh, like, like, that was a terrible uh, impression (laughs) of that. But um, I was like, whoa. Can you imagine making, freaking making that? Like, that's years of pre-production and production and post-production. Like, that is such a big movie, and it was so good, like, and, you know, when I was watching it, I was like, this is this is real art. Like, you know, this is something that is, uh, it's like you put a, it's like putting a company together, but like for one movie, you know, like mm-hmm. each movie is like its own company. And then the company disbands and then they start a new company with different people and things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I was like, wow, this is interesting. So that was the seed. That was the seed, and I Dark was still Knight. playing basketball at that point, so um, that just kind of introduced, you know, what is a director? But now, but now to really explore it, because, I mean, it's not like you hadn't seen movies up until that point, right? Yeah. You had seen a, probably a lot of really good movies right. up until that point. Yeah. For some reason, The Dark Knight did something, and so you saw it in theaters, right? Mm-hmm. So this movie comes out in 08, yeah. 2008, mm-hmm. so you're how old? Oh, woof. Uh, yeah, doing a little math, putting you on the spot here. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm, as sad as it is, I'm going to have to pull out a calculator. It's fine. <laughs> uh, it's 2020. Yep. It's the new year. Okay. And so if I'm 25 minus 12, that's 13. You're 13 when you see The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. So you're, all right, so you just become a teenager, and there has to be something going through where, it's it's you're you're developing this kind of new thinking when you become a teenager, right? True. Everybody can agree on that. Yeah. For better or worse, you're something is going on in your head. Right. And I'm sure you could talk to people and they'd be like, "Oh, it's this. It's it's, it's melatonin. It's it's, it's whatever." <laughs> melatonin. I don't yeah. even know if that's the word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's there's this chemical shit going on in your brain. Yeah. For some reason. You turn 13, you go see The Dark Knight, and something is ignited in you that when you're 12 and you see what comes out in 07, you see super bad. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't do something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting when you start delving deep. It's like, why was it at 13, seeing The Dark Knight in theaters, why? Yeah. It, it, I mean, because to say that it's a good movie, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say that. It's a great movie. But... It has to be something more than that. You were going through a personal change at that point. That's a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, it wasn't just because it was a good movie. That's a good that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, yeah, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't end up acting on the uh, desire to be a filmmaker until like three years later. So so three okay so yeah so that's the seed and it takes a while for it to grow. Maybe I mean you know maybe after that. I started looking at movies a little bit differently and started being more selective over what I uh, sort of marveled at as good cinema. Mm-hmm. And um, can I turn my phone down? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess um, it started curating a particular taste, you know, in my head of like, wow, like, I really like that. I like the form. I probably couldn't put my finger on it at the time. It was like, I just like what I saw, mm-hmm. and I liked the emotional arc, and I loved just what my noggin was staring at, and it was and, cool. And that was the thing. It's what you saw because you're a director of photography. You you you've you've dabbled in directing, right? Yeah, I mean, when actual I was, directing. Well, yeah, when I was starting out, like you know, you start out as a one man band because I didn't go to film school, so I didn't like learn the proper union way of like you know each crew member has their own position and things like you know everybody has their own specific duty mm-hmm. and there's different departments and there's the camera department and there's the art department and there's the hair and makeup department you know all these things. Um, you know, I learned that, um, when I started working in bigger productions, Okay, but, um, starting out as a one man band, like, yeah, like I'm, I'm doing it all. So part of that is directing. And what is it about directing that you're really not that interested in? Why do you want to be the guy that films the movie instead of calling the shots? Or maybe like, maybe that's not the wrong, like that's the wrong way to look at it. Cause I'm sure as a DP, you kind of call the shots yeah i mean the dp is you know the cool thing about being a director of photography is um you can kind of slide anywhere diagonally on a film set like you can be talking to the executive executive producers and you could be talking to the, the production assistants like you're you're kind of like the cool uncle of the film set okay um, unless you're a dickhead um, <laughs> then you're the dickhead uncle but um i just like i mean to put in simple terms, I just like imagery. I like the moving image. I like using lighting, composition, and camera movement uh-huh. to convey an emotion. And it was like, you know, when I was directing things and doing things on my own, you know, I was mostly just doing director photography work and kind of putting <laughs> the actual directing thing aside. I mean, obviously, like, story is very essential in um how I how I approach things like I'm trying you're trying to tell stories and you're trying to create imagery that is able to push the story along and you know every shot needs to have a purpose and it, there needs to be a greater context to what you're doing besides just the one shot okay. in something and uh, starting out as a one man band like I was very deeply involved in learning how to tell a story and learning the principles and things like that, learning character and character arcs and how to try to evoke an emotional response in an audience and things like that. And I was able to churn out so much content because I was working on mini documentaries and like, you know, little promo videos. And within each thing, I was like, how can I make this better? You know, I probably need to tell a story. Um, So, I mean, yeah, a director of photography needs to understand directorial qualities and they have to you know they have to have a very good grasp of storytelling like there's no way around it it is interesting because i again like it's funny i kind of because it's it's the way our friendship works like when you when you do something and i'm like all right so he's getting into filmmaking so i automatically was like all right so he wants to be a director he wants to be he wants to be a Christopher Nolan. He wants to be a whatever. And 
come to find out, you're like, no, I really don't have like a, that big of an interest in that. I, I, I want to be the guy, like you said, I want to be the cool uncle. I don't want to be the, the, the douchebag father, the abusive father. <laughs> well, <laughs> most directors aren't like that. Kubrick. But, but um, I mean, some are, but like, Good old yeah, Kube. the thing about, yeah, you know, I don't really like the whole like, uh, talking with actors thing and just like trying to you know, the whole directing actors. Yeah. That's, that's the part where I, that's why I can't really be a director is I don't really, to me, that's not, I don't know. I, I just don't, I'm not good at it. So I don't like it. Like, I don't think I can direct actors and I don't really have a desire to, because I'm all about what they're doing on screen. And I would prefer to be translating somebody else's grander vision. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of, pulling my weight uh, to tag along with it. Cause filmmaking is the ultimate team sport. You know, it's not just me. There's uh, the production designer who, you know, they're crafting the environments of the film and the environments that the characters reside in. And, you know, I'm working with them, you know, I'm working with them on figuring out color palettes and, you know, how things are looking in, you know, if they're going to put a lamp on this side of the room, if they're going to, you know, put wallpaper on the walls, and what does that convey uh, to an audience about this character? Um, if one side of the room where a person is on is, like, really disheveled looking and the other side is very neat and order- orderly or whatnot, you know, the shapes of the lamps that they're, we're putting in the room, like, okay, like, this person, uh, this character is uh, very ordered, so... They're not going to have a curved lamp. They're going to have like a rectangle lamp. And you go through these discussions and you're, you're working with them. You're working with the wardrobe to figure out, you know, I think if they have a brighter, more poppy color wardrobe for this scene, you know, it gives us this emotion. So I think it's right because blah, blah, blah. And all that is that is to service the director because he has all this. He's the big picture guy. And we're just kind of, you know, doing our part to make it happen. And, uh. It's, uh, yeah, it's good to just, I mean, a DP is a very, like, you know, high-ranking person on the film set. Like, they're running three departments, so. Yeah. Um, it's still, like, you get to have a lot of, you get to be a boss, and you are, you're like, a, you're the director of photography, you know? Yeah. Uh, a lot goes into that. And there is, there is, uh, again, you think of, the director of photography, because usually during a credit scene at the beginning or end, it'll say director of photography, Russell Carpenter, the guy that shot Titanic. Um, I think that's his name, Russell Carpenter. I don't know. Um, to be honest, I have no idea. I think that's who it is. Uh, okay. But his name will pop up, right? And the audience is thinking, uh, oh, wow, okay, one guy filmed this entire movie. And that's not the case. It's you're the guy, you're the director of photography, you're you're directing your cameramen, right? I'm directing, so yeah, a director of photography has three departments that he's overseeing. He has his camera department, he has his grip department, and he has his electric department. So um, all of those kind of work in tandem and, you know, yeah, the director of photography is the director of all that. So he's kind of pulling the strings and, you know, kind of communicating with his team on what he needs to happen. So, um, you know, grips deal with a lot of, um, they deal with, you know, not necessarily like the lighting fixtures themselves, but if 
you know, if you're using something to soften the light, they're, they're dealing with rigging. So rigging lights and rigging cameras to things. If you're uh, sort of doing a, a car rig, you know, that's a very popular kind of, you know, the car shot. If someone driving in a car, mm-hmm. you know, your grips are going to be dealing with that. If you need to rig up lights outside the window, you know, your grips are kind of doing a lot of the rigging. And then your electrical team, they're picking out the lamps and, that you're using. So, you know, which light are you going to use to light this scene? And you kind of talk to your, your gaffer, who's the head of your electrical, te- uh, electrical team. As a DP, you know, you, have, you need to have a very good relationship with your gaffer. And you're talking to them about, like, what kind of light you're going for in the scene. And they make it happen with the rest of their electrical team. And uh, they work with the grips. And that's one aspect of it. And then the whole camera team is like, you know, they're in charge of building the camera out to, you know, for whatever purpose um, and however you're going to be shooting. So if it's going to be on a dolly, it's going to be built one way. If it's handheld, there's going to be different rigging, what lenses, what filters, um, Jeez. routing monitors to the whole film set. It's a, it's a complicated job. <laughs> Does it bother you like when you hear people that are like quote unquote self-taught? Because you because you did go to school for it, you right? Mm, I mean, sort of. Uh, I went to I didn't go to film school. Uh, my sort of major was digital media production, mm-hmm. and what did that encompass? So, like the difference between media production and a film school. Film school is going to teach you like the union ways of working on a film set. This is a gaffer. This is a first uh, assistant director. This is a second assistant director. This is a production man. Like, just the various, like, everybody has their duties, and, you know, uh, it's kind of teaching you the structured way that a Hollywood movie would work. So when you graduate, you can go walk onto a film set and know what you're doing. Uh, My major was not like that. It was just kind of like, I don't know, small teams, three to five people just go out and make some shit. Um, You know, go out with a camera, a couple lights, and uh, figure out how to tell a story. And And you spent thousands of dollars to do this? Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, to be honest, like, I mean, I I don't regret going to college. Um, My parents had, like, Florida prepaid, so they'd been paying little by little, so it's like, I had no reason not to go. Okay. Uh, and the thing is, like, I was working while I was in school. So I had two part-time jobs in production. So I was trying to, I was trying to learn, you know, every way I could. So actually working for the university, making little mini docs on, like, students and things like that. And uh, I was able to shoot sports, um, you know, like football, basketball, and all that type of stuff. So, uh, and I work, work on school projects. Now, the level of, it, like, equipment and instruction in the program I was at wasn't, uh, I wouldn't call it, like, industry standard. <laughs> and, uh... Shout out to, uh, FSU, right? Well, I mean, I think the sports production aspect of it was industry standard. Like, that was very... That's what they're really big on. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That major, you know... If you want to go into sports production, you know, that is definitely the way to go, I think. Okay. Um, 
you're trying to be an actual filmmaker, it's still the way to go. But like you get in what you, you get out what you put in. So like I worked really hard and for me, the value is just like learning to work in a team on something like just hanging out with people, Mm -hmm. being in a editing lab until three in the morning, everybody's working on their projects late at night. And it's like this cool bonding experience with a lot of people. So I gleaned that from my experience was just like, you know, met cool people and had some good times, mm-hmm. actual instruction. Um, I think you need to kind of go your own way for that. Use the university of Google, the university of YouTube. So in a way, the, uh, art of filmmaking is not necessarily, uh, solely based on getting a quote unquote proper education. It's really more about, I mean, yeah, the education is probably extremely beneficial. You gain a lot, but just get out there and do what you want to do with your filmmaking, specifically filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, that's what I did. I mean, uh, I just kind of, I don't know. So, like, as a director, a lot of director of photographies, they'll try to kind of, like, work their way up the ladder in a way. So, like, some of them will go the route of being a second assistant cameraman uh, and then a first assistant cameraman and then a director of photography. So you kind of move your way up the ladder or some of them will like start out as a grip and then they'll work their way up. You know, maybe they'll switch to the electric team and they'll become a gaffer and then they'll become a cinematographer. Okay. But um, I kind of, I don't know. I just decided to kind of skip all that (laughs) and just call myself a director of photography and, uh, just kind of, because, I don't know, I just like doing that. I like uh, I like being the main, I like being the, the visual curator of the film. You know, a director of, of photography is the look manager. Like, what you lay your eyes on on screen mm-hmm. from a purely visual standpoint, that's the DP's doing. And he works with a director. He's translating a director's vision. But uh, the DP is put, putting the pieces in place. And a lot of it is like, um, you know, a lot of it is done in pre-production. Okay. Because on production, at least the productions that I'm at, I'm, I'm, at, I'm working on, like there's never any fucking time. Like on set, it's such a rush, man. Like, jeez, you always have to be going. In commercial work, it's a little slower because commercials, there's uh, – they're just slower. There's like, you know, you're making a 30 second spot. Yeah. You know, you don't have to shoot uh, six scenes of a film a day. So, um, yeah, when, when you're working on set, you have to really, at least my approach is to have a very thorough and very heavy pre-production process. So when I get to set and I'm dealing with location constraints, talent constraints, um, time constraints. It's like, fuck, man, just like, you know, just trust the pre-production process to the point where I don't even have to think. I just like, ah, oh, I just need to do something right now. And it's like, it's kind of like instinct at that point yeah. where it's like I've heavily ingrained the context of the film and the context of this scene into my head that the, the decisions I'm making are naturally coming out as hopefully beneficial to the end product. But, like, I'm not going off into a corner and, like, thinking really hard about <laughs> the scene for 15 minutes because I don't have any time. You just have to be moving. Um, 
I guess on a on an indie film kind of level, you just have to you have to be going, and um, you know sometimes it doesn't look exactly how you'd want. Mm-hmm. So, but you kind of you can't just stop the flow of the production because there's a, there's actors involved, mm-hmm. and they, they need to be delivering emotional performances, mm-hmm. and you still have to make sure you know the longer I take to light a scene or something, uh, that's the less time the director has to get the performances that he needs. So, and that's something I'm trying to figure out. You know, I think every cinematographer is always trying to improve their workflow on set. So, um, who are the, like, who's like, who's the cinematographers you look up to? (sighs) Um, a lot of them, uh, look up to a lot of cinematographers. Uh, I would say some of my favorites, uh, at the moment are Jeff Cronenweth. So, he shoots a lot of David Fincher's films. Okay. Uh, I love the way his films look. Like Social Network, Gone Social Girl. Social Network, Gone Girl, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Wow. Some of the most beautifully shot films you'll ever see. Okay. Um, and then I'm a big fan of Matthew Libatik. Um, Who's that? He works with Darren Aronofsky a lot. Black Swan. Um, yeah, he shot uh, He shot Black Swan. Um I really like what he did with A Star is Born. I thought the cinematography was really, really good. Okay. Uh, he got nominated for an Oscar for that. I'm a big fan of... Um, Lubeski? Emmanuel? He's amazing. He's an incredible cinematographer. I wouldn't... I don't consistently look at his imagery. Uh-huh. Uh, is he one of those examples of someone that is... Because I think... I didn't know the names you just listed. Okay. But I did know, I, I know Emmanuel Lubeski. Uh-huh. Am I saying it right? Yeah. Okay. And well, it, I think. I don't know. He's, and, but it's like, I why do I know him? And well, he's, he Didn't he win like two Oscars in a row? Is that it? it but it, he, also, his his films, the aesthetic of his films are very bold. Um, at least the recent ones. Like, he has a very bold look. He'll stick a... 14 millimeter lens right in somebody's face. You know, it, the lens is six inches from somebody's face and he'll shoot a close up that way. Um, and that's obviously not only him. That's, you know, the director wants it that way too. Yeah. Yeah. But he does that a lot. That's like one of his signals. He uses wide lenses like crazy. And, um, he did, uh, what he did gravity. He did Revenant. He did uh, Birdman. Is that, yeah. that's him? Yeah, that's another thing, like, you know, very bold look. So, you know, he's doing everything, you know, they were doing it to look like it all happened in one shot. One shot, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's really good. I just, personally, like, I don't find myself connecting to his imagery as much as other cinematographers. Okay. So, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a classical romantic. I like films that are shot the classical way, you know, because... You know, that type of filmmaking, in my opinion, will never grow old. Okay. You know, it'll always, it'll always, uh, it'll always be there because that's just the way it's always been done. And like, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, you know, do things a new, the new way, an innovative way. And, you know, I don't really abide by that. I, you know, I think that. Uh, as a filmmaker, yeah, you serve the story, um, but there's certain principles that have sort of um, been present in filmmaking for a while, 
And the reason that they're present and they continue to be present is because they work and audiences like them. Um, so I look at a film like The Irishman, which is a beautifully shot film. The cinematography is excellent. Um, it is a very classically shot film. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, that type of filmmaking, it will it will never age. Um, the Revenant, I have a feeling it's, yes, it's beautifully shot. But I don't know. I feel like that type of filmmaking get, you know, it's it's kind of like a one-trick pony, like sticking a 12-millimeter lens in front of somebody's face versus, um, you know, you shoot a nice wide shot, you shoot a nice two-shot, you shoot a nice close-up, and, you know, you incorporate um, interesting blocking to the scene, but Spielberg shoots a lot of his films very classically. It's just kind of, it's hard to explain. It's one of those things that you know it when you see it. Yeah, the trained um, eye. Maybe, yeah. Well, maybe it's not hard to explain. Maybe I'm, I'm just not good at explaining it, but... Um, you know, it's like essentially the look of those films, the goal of classical filmmaking is to be not imposing, you know, you want to, you want audiences to experience the story and they experience the story through the characters. So as a cinematographer, I'm going to sort of approach it as like, um, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot and frame in a way that conveys what the characters are thinking and feeling, but I, I don't want to make it like, I don't want to make my presence known. So yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I don't want to interrupt. Cause like I, cause like when I see people, like it seems like you're onto your next important thoughts. So I'm just letting it go. Uh, some other cinematographers that I'm a fan of Bradford young, uh, he's a very good DP. Okay. Um, and I, I follow Dean Cundy. Dean Cundy. I'm not. Is a, he is no? I'm not. A, I mean, no. His his type of filmmaking is so old school. Like okay. So I, I was gonna say is is he considered classical? But you he's old. Oh, he's classical. But okay. Um, I mean, yeah. His he shoots amazing imagery. Like he's one of the greatest of all time. But. I've never looked at his his cinematography and been like, "Oh my god!" Now, is, but is he only one of the greatest of all time because he's only like he's technically worked on some of the greatest films of all time? Maybe so. For you know sure. what I mean? Like, take, but, take out the fact that he was on uh, Jurassic Park and Back to the Future mm-hmm. and Halloween and uh-huh. you know what I mean like put him in, you know, I don't know, put him in movies that like flubber. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, um, you know, people say, I actually really like Citizen Kane, but uh, uh, I swear to God, I thought you were going to say, I actually like Flubber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, Citizen Kane. Yeah. I really, but like, you know, people are like, ah, it's so old. Like, you know, I like, uh, I like Batman more and like, yeah, it's, it's more modern. Like it relates to a mo- So like, Dean Cundy, he's an old school cinematographer, and it's like, yeah, he's really good, but it's like, I kind of like some of the newer fellows more. Okay, um, fair enough. Now, Janusz Kaminski, he's Spielberg's kind of go-to DP. I love he's how, He's the John Williams of DP for, for Spielberg? Yeah, I mean, okay. he works on everything with him. Um, I don't know about his recent stuff. Oh, no, he did Bridge of Spies. Ready Player Spielberg. One? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but 
I mean, he's done a lot, like Catch Me If You Can and uh-huh. um, The Terminal. Was that a Spielberg? That was. I love The Terminal. Um, I think I'm in a very small minority there. I think Janusz Kaminski shot that. Um, minority Report, Report was shot by Kaminski. He's done a lot, like uh, Schindler's List. Um, okay. So now when you talk about something like Ready Player One, which is filmmaking on a different level, right? In terms of even just the DP. It's not a classical way to approach a film because it's not even, it's all digital, right? Right, a, right. A lot of that movie is what, motion capture? I think so. But you can still approach it with the same principles. So like um, classical filmmaking is just being uh, present with the story and not trying to, not trying to sort of steal the show, um, I think. Like, um you know, you, there's always going to be a place for you, you enter the scene, um, you know, if it's just two characters talking to each other, you don't have to do anything weird. It's just like, you have a night, compose a nice, good looking wide shot of the space, and then you'll get a close up cover or medium close up coverage of one character and then close up coverage of the other character and let the scene play out. Maybe a couple like inserts on hands if somebody's handing someone somebody something, but it's like just do it kind of the way that it's been done, and because uh, that's what audiences like. And oh, you, but and, dude, I'm sure there's so many people out there that are like, ah, oh, but it that's that's the that's that's the detriment right there. It's been done. You have to you have to constantly what's what's the next thing? Yeah, but the thing is, you have to serve the story, so people are like, oh, just do something different, like. No, just for the sake of doing something different? No. Do something that's going to work for the film you're trying to make. So does the one take thing with Birdman, is that a gimmick or does that actually serve the story? In uh, your opinion. In my, I mean, oh, tricky situation. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, that is like, I mean, that was one of the things. I don't know if it was in the marketing, but I know that it was something that people would talk about. Like, yeah. Dude, that movie is all in one shot. Right. That's really cool. Uh, I would not approach a film that way, <laughs> but I think it's badass that they did. I mean, I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't approach that film. I, I would say I would. I probably would have enjoyed the film more if it was like split up into cover. I just thought the, sto- cuts. the I thought the story was unique and Michael Keaton coming back uh, to essentially play himself. Like I thought that was really interesting. If it was done a classical way, I would have liked it a lot. I still do like it a lot, but. I just, to me, uh, I, I don't connect with that type of shtick, so to speak, as much as um, a movie like, uh, I don't know, Saving Private Ryan. You know, that film will never age, I think, because it was done very classically. And, uh, you know, uh, what's another, what are some other good, cl- I mean, The Dark Knight and, you know, all of Nolan's films are done the classical way. Okay. And they'll stand the test of time, I think. Do you find it frustrating that, in a way, cinematography and a, being a DP doesn't get the credit it deserves? Because most people, when they go to a movie, unless you're a cinephile or unless you're someone who is interested in being a DP, if you're a general public audience member, you're not going to a movie to watch the DP do his thing. You're going because it has Edward Norton in it or you're going because it has Scarlett Johansson in it. Right. You know what I mean? No, I mean if you want the glitz and glamour of that, then you should just try to be one of those things. You should like, be an actor, right? Okay, or a director or something. But if you're, yeah, if you're a DP, you you sh- nobody should ever 
really notice you because that means you've done your job. If nobody, I mean, somebody can marvel at the cinematography. Yeah. Uh, somebody can appreciate it, but like, I don't know. Nobody should be like, Ooh, that's a cool shot. Um, I mean, I guess they can. I get the point I'm trying to say is like a DP is a behind the scenes kind of wizard. You know, he's, uh, he's kind of doing things in the background that nothing should ever be like super blatant, obvious, like, Ooh, he just used the color blue in that. And that's really cool use of the color blue. And no, just like, let it live and, uh, serve the characters in the story and try to try to do your best to do that thing. Yeah. Um, and what about the award circuit? Like, is that, is, is awards just, uh, an essentially another gimmick? Like there's no need for awards. Uh, or do you think like they're awards are fine. I think awards are cool. Yeah. Um, it's cool to be recognized. Um, I think, I think, you know, if you're doing something with such level of technicality as cinematography, like the reason I like cinematography is it's a bridge between the technical and the creative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you have to understand a tremendous amount of technical information and be able to put it into something that can, uh, you know, create an emotion in an audience. But, um, I think it's better to be sort of like uh, awarded and honored by your peers because nobody knows what you go through like your peers, peers. you know? So like, you know, if, uh, if, you know, uh, some Joe Schmo on the street says like, Oh man, that looked freaking rad, dude. Yeah. Like, thank you so much. Uh But if like somebody who I highly respect says like, you know, nice job on that movie. You look good. I'm like, Oh, thank you so much. I worked so hard. I'm glad you noticed. If somebody else notices, like, yeah, I don't really care that much. Because um, you shouldn't. I mean, you don't you do not do it for that. You do it to make a good movie. Yeah. I don't know. See, like, I'm like I'm just thinking about, like, you know, Golden Globes, Oscars, and, 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 and all this shit. And it's just, I don't know if it's just the older I get, I'm just more like, it doesn't mean anything in terms of my appreciation of something, you know, like someone says, Oh, La La Land got 20 nominations. Cool. I mean, doesn't mean it's a great movie. I agree. You I hundred percent agree. I think as an individual, it's, you know, it, it would be cool if you get one of those awards, but I don't think it's any indication of the greatness or weakness of a, of a piece. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's like the final say on if this thing is good or not. Yeah, yeah. Cause like thinking about something, I don't know, perfect example is Joker, like a movie that is phenomenal, saw it three times, and, and, and it's a movie that is very controversial for stupid reasons. Um, but that's just society we lit it, uh, live in. And you're looking at the award circuit. And I mean, it's, it, it's racking up awards like crazy, you know, and I definitely agree. Yeah, that, like that's a phenomenal fucking movie, and it's a movie with a message. It's not just a great movie; it's it has something to say. So it's good that it's getting recognition because the general public are like, "Oh wow, that movie got fifteen Golden Globe nominations. That must mean I should see it." Right, and it, and it gets more eyes on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But then you have movies like uh, The King's Speech, <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. you know it's like it, it. Yes, it's a good movie, but it's a very Oscar-y movie. And like to, uh, 
don't know, to uh, to most audiences, it's uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess that was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's not like, ooh, like, I'm going to go see the King's Speech today. Yeah. Uh, it's like, all right, I'm going to watch this film. I and feel you. I mean, it, I don't know. Maybe there's a maturity there, like just very historic, historically oriented people enjoy stuff like that and that you know that's a film for that audience yeah um for it to win best picture i don't, I don't know were, especially i mean dude that movie was up like that was up against social network that was up against 127 hours that was up was against it the same year black swan yeah that was 2011 10 2010 yeah. social network was 2010 10 yeah ah. black swan 2010 127 hours 2010 uh-huh. like and it took best picture right the King's Speech won. Best I'm, Picture, I'm right? Pretty sure it won Best Picture. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> the Social Network, honestly, because you know my love for 127 Hours. Longest Time, it used to be my favorite. Awesome cinematography, I think, in that movie. Uh, the like the way they got like because I mean that's like a single location kind of film. Um, I love how it. Lo- I mean, it was. Yeah, it got nominated for Best Cinematography as I'm, well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but I mean, The Social Network. I don't know, like. That's, I think that's the movie in looking back now that we're at 2010, 10 years ago, I think the social network was the the best movie of that year because I mean, yeah, Facebook might not be what it was then or what it became in the middle, but I mean, that sparked, a, I mean, it, 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 it had such substance to it because it literally, we're still living it to this day. You know what I mean? The King's speech is... Uh, inspirational thing about this guy overcoming, right? A speech impediment, essentially. And then what? He leads, and a true story. It was a historical leads a nation thing. or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was cool. But uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I just you know, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, I certainly didn't, you know, come come away amazed by the film. riveted. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Have you ever seen this movie called Buried? Yeah. Ryan Reynolds? Yeah. Dude, like, again, talking about single location, I just want to talk about that real quick. Like, to me, that's, that is impressive because the way that they kept that movie interesting, because that movie takes place all in a coffin. Mm -hmm. For anybody who's listening who has not seen this movie with Ryan Reynolds, the entire film, I kid you not, is in a coffin, okay? And they kept, literally, that movie is start to finish entertaining. And it's, one, because of Ryan Reynolds. He's just, he holds the screen. And whether or not you think it's a great movie, it is, I think it holds your attention. It does. I mean, it definitely evokes a very, like, it has a feeling to it. Like, you can't not Claustrophobic. Yeah, very, yeah, you can't <laughs> not feel that as you watch the movie. Like, it, you almost, like, you keep watching, but you don't feel good while you're watching it. Like, you're body kind of tenses up and it's like you, yeah you almost try to you almost like feel like you're in, in that coffin with them which is what they were trying to do um you're yeah. smiling though like well uh <laughs> no I, I know the i i'm sure the, the whole purpose of the, not the whole purpose but like the whole shtick of the film was always to be in the coffin i'd like to think like you know i don't know how like it goes down in like big budget movies but <laughs> now that i have a little bit of experience of like filmmaking or like working with budgets uh, like i'd like to think like oh we uh you know we want to film this whole like uh section in the middle east and uh, like you know have this whole battle thing play out and yada 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 have all these characters 
oh, we don't have budget for that. <laughs> okay, let's just stick them in the coffin. <laughs> um, no, but, but dude, I, uh, th- that obviously didn't happen. It but like, worked. Yeah. It's it seriously helped that movie so much because I think that's what makes it scary. Right? Yeah, for like, sure, for sure. This is a, like seriously, it's it's a movie that has never left me from the moment I saw it because mm-hmm. I think it's one of the scariest movies ever made, and it's there's one thing that always bothered me though. I don't know if you remember, like there's a scene where the there's a snake in the coffin. I don't know if you remember that. Not vividly. There's a snake in the coffin, nice. and then and then they show you that it gets out through like a like a hole okay. in the coffin, and I'm thinking to myself, why is sand not pouring in through that hole? Oh. It's always bothered me. But anyways, that's just a little side tangent. Maybe um, he like plugged the hole with his... I mean, but it was open. Uh, so the, that's how the snake got in. And, and uh, the, I, I'm pretty sure that's how the snake got in in the first place. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, that true. that movie is so effective because you don't leave the coffin. Maybe it's just, it's rocks. Maybe it was like it was rocky, rocky terrain. Uh, or maybe yeah. like... Like not like a like a sand that seeps in, but it could... Like a, like a more sturdy sand almost? Yeah, yeah. Cool. I don't know. Who the fuck knows? I mean, I don't care. I'm not like I'm not losing sleep over it. <laughs> like it's just always bothered me. But um the movie is effective because you don't leave and you're only ever seeing the outside world like through these text messages that he's getting or these mm-hmm. video f- calls that oh, he's getting. True. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just fucking horrifying. What was the film that like took place all on a laptop screen? Uh Unfriended? Think, yeah. Wait, Unfriended? No. Was that it? No, the one where like the the dude's daughter goes missing. Oh oh, uh, searching, dude! That I haven't seen searching. So good. It's good. Oh my god! It's I haven't seen so, that. So 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 good. Is it on Netflix? I don't know. I where did I see it? I saw it. Did I see it in the movie theater? Searching. Kind of an odd <laughs> film to be like. Ah, I want to experience this in the cinema. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it, no. I think I just rented it or okay. something like that. It was really good. Really good? Such good filmmaking. Such interesting filmmaking, you know. Yeah. Have you seen Unfriended? <laughs> no. <laughs> the horror film? I from, have not. Uh, from Mr. Jason Blum? No. You haven't seen it? No. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I thought you were talking about. It's a, it, it, it's a stupid movie. It's good. But it's it, it's all in, like, Skype calls. Oh, okay. And shit. Interesting. And so it's like kids get picked off. They're, like, talking to each other, and uh-huh. there's, like, a curse going around whatever i don't know uh but yeah searching i've i've heard good things about it so definitely want to check it out what are you working on these days like uh like any big major like projects that you can talk about uh well i'm not really like big enough to be like oh i can't talk about i signed an nda (laughs) i mean i do i do sign ndas on occasion for you do yeah um but they're not for it's not for like anything massive like you know like i'm not Working with LeBron James next week, uh, or am I? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, or the week after. Uh, that's that, that's when you're working with him. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, maybe this year. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I work on uh, commercials, music videos. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess you know. Can you talk about your the film you just finished? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, was in Tallahassee for like the last two months working on a indie film which was an awesome experience so um essentially i was in tallahassee for yeah two months one month of that was sort of just heavy Mm pre-production on it just going on location scouts and um figuring out logistics and just you know 
being in the areas that we're going to film. This was a big passion project. So, um, you know, I took off a lot of paying jobs to be able to, to do this because I thought it was important to be able to put a lot of time and effort into telling the story, but also just like working on something big, you know, with like fairly big scope. Um, so the film uh, it was directed by Corey Crumpacker, who is a good friend of mine. He's my roommate in Austin, Texas. Uh, and he's from Tallahassee and shout out to Corey. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, so he, yeah, he was the writer director of the film. Okay. It's called white fire and it is, uh, essentially, uh, stories about a 13 year old runners, uh, year long battle with a rare form of bone cancer. True story. It's a true story that Corey wrote, um, pretty much about his brother's journey. So, uh, deeply emotional film for him. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really interesting because, you know, it was shot in the home, t- you know, it was shot in the, his hometown, Tallahassee, where everything took place. And, it, you know, uh, I was staying at his family's place. I was, uh, you know, a, a, his his mom cooked all the meals for every day on set. Like, his dad was very present, like, his, wow. his his brother Jake, who the story's about, was on set several times, and uh, so spoiler alert, he's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's good. He's good. all good. No, no, that's good. Um, and it wow, was so uh, you had like on set catering. Yeah, yeah. Sick. It was a very uh, it was it was a home homegrown film, and it was it was a community effort. So the Tallahassee community kind of rallied behind us and um, kind of made things happen for us, got us access to food donations and a lot of, um, you know, we got location access. We got to film, you know, it's a cancer story, so you have to film in a hospital and getting permission to film in hospitals is very difficult. But we got to film in Tallahassee Memorial Hospital. They gave us this, like, old abandoned wing of the hosp- of one of the old abandoned wings of the hospital, and they let us, like, redesign, like, a hospital room from scratch to make it look like a children's hospital. Like, cause the, before you should see the, the before and after pictures, like it was like yellow walls and like it was all dirty and like it was cause it was abandoned. Like, um, they weren't using it. So our production designer who did an amazing job on it, Jocelyn kind of built literally a children's hospital room from scratch, from scratch. And Shit. that was our main set piece. Um, what was like the budget on this? Um, the budget was not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not big enough. Um, but the good thing about being in Tallahassee was like we were able to pull a lot of favors from uh-huh. the community. So, you know, it, it ended up being like close to, I, like, I, I don't know exactly the numbers because I'm not super in the producer world. Um, but the producers will deal with all that. I think it ended up being like around 100 K, um, maybe a little under, but with the amount of resources that we pulled and the amount of favors, um, it probably realistically would be around like, I don't know, 500 K or something like that. Like that's the, that's the scope of it. And even that isn't like big for a film. Now here's the, the, thing that people are like what 
So it's not even, it's not a feature film. It's a short, but it was the scope of a feature because the script is so dense mm-hmm. and there's so many scenes and like we're just taking the audience through the full experience of childhood cancer and like the different experiences at home and in the hospital and you know the Corey's family is uh, you know there's six people there's the mom the dad uh, his his brother Jake and then his sister Cassie and then uh, his brother Will is a little brother so he's like is that five people? <laughs> no, it's five people. Um, so, like, it's a big family, and he wanted to give each of them, he wanted to show the full family dynamic. Obviously, the story's about Jake, but there was a, yeah, I mean, it was a very dense film. You have to film certain scenes, and there's five people, and, you know, getting coverage in those situations gets a little st- sticky because you don't, you never have enough time. Um, you know, we filmed in hospitals. We, uh, filmed in houses. We filmed in cars. We filmed in high schools because we we did some scenes where um, there's like a nightmare sequence. Um, so we got to film in like you know like a haunted school hallway. Like you know he was a runner, so we got to film in like a haunted locker room. Like uh-huh. we made it look like a nightmare scene. Um, so we also got to film in like a medical school in Tallahassee. And uh, made it sort of look like a like an actual hospital, and it was yeah. I mean, the scene the the scenes were so a lot of them were so emotionally dense, mm-hmm. and there were just a lot of scenes. Some of them were quick, but even if you like, you know, every scene needs to have a purpose in the film, and you need to sort of like I don't know, you need to light it to convey purpose of that scene so it still requires a different aesthetic and you know you have to do the heavy pre-production up front but you know there's just there was so much work because a lot of indie films when it comes down to it it's just two people in a room talking maybe three people or whatever but it'll just go from scene to scene and that's how they're able to get made because they're you know the budgets aren't great on those but it's like you know just do it simple just you know minimal locations we had a lot of different locations in this um, and just, you know, whether we're doing a cross country scene with a hundred extras, um, you know, cheering on at the finish line or we're in the woods of the cross country race and we're rigging cameras to vehicles to be able to follow uh, our runners. Um, and it's this whole coordinated process. This was a big, pretty big scope for an indie film like way past the budget that it actually was. Yeah, um, half a mil. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, I mean no, people I... people were thinking like some some folks messaged me and some some of the other people in the crew when they saw behind the scenes mm-hmm. like what is the budget of this like 1.5 million, 2 million? And we're like, <laughs> "Oh man." And the film's going to end up being like 35 minutes. Okay. 35 to 40. And it's going to be say. what circulated around in festivals? festivals and then i think you know one cool thing would be if it could be distributed by like you know children's miracle network which is a nonprofit that funds cancer research uh-huh. um, or like american cancer society and things things of that sort so it can cause the ultimate goal for the film is to give people hope uh you know a you know a uh an uplifting motivational hopeful story about 
something that a lot of people are dealing with and we're sort of able to, I don't know, encapsulate all that into a film that people can watch and experience and it can help, I hope. <laughs> right. That's the interesting thing. And I was going to bring it up and you just, you just put the idea right in my, like right back in my head. So stick with me on this. It's something that I think about a lot. Cause you know, you hear about how, right. Like the USA alone, right. We're in so much debt. Right. And yet you look at Hollywood, you look at just, just the idea of movies in general, how much budgets cost to make one movie. Right. And it's not guaranteed to be a movie that's going to give people hope. It's not guaranteed to have cultural impact. It's not guaranteed to do anything. It's a lot of times they're flops. A lot of times they're shit films, right? They're, they're Tyler Perry movies. They're, they're uh, Norbit with Eddie Murphy. Yeah. You look at the budget of those movies, right? You go think about what you could have done with that $27 million. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Like, where else could you have put that $27 million besides into Norbit? <laughs> you know what I mean? But then you just countered it with, you do, You guys spent half a million dollars, and the idea is to give people hope, which, if it works, they watch the movie, and if it inspires someone, they're going to go out, and who knows what they're going to do with that newfound inspiration. They might start an organization. They might volunteer at something. You know what I mean? It's it's a tricky thing to try to try to figure out, you know, what is the value of this project ultimately? Do you like, do you see where I'm going with this? For sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, with things like that, it's just, it's just kind of the entertainment industry. Yeah, you know, you just have to make content and not everything has to be, you know, not everything has to be, uh, you know, a gritty inspirational story of someone <laughs> overcoming something. You just want to go to the movie and like have a cheap laugh. And that's where, but that know, should be the key right there. That's where your friend Seth Rogen will help you out with that. That should be the key right there. These movies should not cost the way like, like these cheap laugh movies, they should not cost how much they cost to make. Well, first of all, budgets are lowering, uh, you know, just in, in the industry, just across the board, budgets are lowering. How so? Uh, just, you know, commercials and movies like things are consistently getting lower like uh scorsese you know he tried for years to get the irishman made and Mm -hmm. the only studio that would budge is netflix you know that movie i think cost 100 million um and that was mostly on the de-aging stuff mm -hmm. from what i understand right so like uh i mean movies are expensive to make like you know they're they're not easy uh but a lot of it comes down to marketing huh Market, yeah, a lot of, like, I think half of a film's budget, someone once told me, is spent on marketing. Damn. But, I mean, production is expensive, you know, you want to get, you want to get a really good cinematographer on board, so you got to pay them, you want to uh, get really good crew, and you want to get good equipment, so all that costs money, and then your cast and your locations, if you're filming in Los Angeles, location fees are going to be very expensive, unless you're in a studio, and studio fees are going to be expensive, you know, it's like, it it all costs a lot of money. So um, it doesn't like things add up and like, it sounds like a lot of money, but like when you're in it, it's like, ah oh, man, there's always, even with, you know, a silly film, like what you're talking about, like Norbit or whatever, <laughs> like they're not easy to make. They're even a bad film is incredibly difficult. Um, just from what I've seen, um, just from what people have told me and things like that. So, 
you know, uh, at the end of the day, thing, things are expensive and uh, it's it, things just cost a lot. So, yeah, I mean, the social utility of those films, I, I don't think every, some, yeah, some films you just need to be able to accomplish the cheap laugh. Like, it needs to be $27 million, uh, unfortunately. Because, yeah. However, you know, doesn't mean you have to make a bad, you know, cheap laugh movie. You could still make it good. And, you know, that just comes down to maybe they gave the wrong people the money. You know what I mean? Like the writers and shit. Yeah. You know, so like, you know, that's the studio's fault. Like, it's like, wait, we just spent 27 million on this when we could spend whatever, uh, 27 million on, uh, 21 Jump Street or something? I was just thinking that, dude. That's crazy. That's that, that's weird. That is a standout comedy, for sure. I wonder what the budget of that was. I'm going to guess 60. You think 60? All right, I'm going to pull it up here using my super fast 5G. Said no one. You're probably going to be so wrong. Wait, what'd you say again? 60. 60 million on 21 Jump Street. Yeah, that's see. my guess. All right, 21 Jump Street, came out in 2012. Go here, budget, 54.7 million. Ooh, pretty close. Box office, 201.5 million. Now, that's a good investment. That's good, that's good return. <laughs> that's why there investment. was a 22 Jump Street. Yeah. Which I would assume the budget probably went up a little bit. Probably, yeah. 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 Um, that's usually how it works, right? Bigger and better. So even the budget goes up. I think. Uh, I mean, that makes logical sense. Uh, I'm sure it's it, it's all sort of scalable. Like you know, yeah, you want to you want to make it better, like bigger and better. So you put more money in, but you're making it bigger and better. So it ends up proportionally costing <laughs> the same. Like you're still gonna run into the same issues. Like, oh, you know, we still have to cut corners on this because sure we have more money, but we're using it to, to, you know, add this cool visual effects technique or whatever. Yeah. Dude, it's crazy, man. Look, dude, I, I am thrilled that you came on cause you did come on one time before and we talked about James Cameron yeah. and, uh, it was like through the phone, uh, if you remember mm -hmm. and the audio was horrible. So I never ended up actually sharing it That's... because the audio was shit. Yeah. Uh, and it really hurt me because I was like, damn it. I finally got Mike on and we had some good shit that we talked about in there. So I was like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I always I feel, feel like we did. I always feel like a schlub when I'm uh, talking in front of a microphone because when I listen to podcasts, like everyone sounds so fucking cool and they sound, I don't know, they sound uh, really gnarly. And I'm just here talking about dicks and <laughs> just like, I don't know, just talking shit. And like, you know, why would anyone listen to anything? I say. And dude, trust me when I tell you that that is always in the back of my head and it's <laughs> something that I've dealt with for a while, but I, you just always got to tell yourself that like somebody finds it interesting and multiple people probably find it interesting. Hmm. You're always your own worst enemy. That's so cliche, but it's so fucking true when it comes to something like this, starting a podcast, uh -huh. you know, you, like you, I'm very much influenced by Joe Rogan, but yeah. I'm not trying to be Joe Rogan. You know, I'm trying to, I just love talking to people and, and, and hearing new and fascinating things and, and having laughs. And, and if that helps somebody and this doesn't cost anything, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, it costs me shit, but 
Um, it doesn't cost anyone anything to listen to this. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, hopefully it's helping people. And you might have just inspired someone. I hope I said something that somebody will find uh, useful or interesting. It was funny when we, like, off air, I was like, or, or you were like, what can we talk about? I was like, anything and everything. So if the conversation goes from this to, to hookers, yeah, and you were like, uh, well, you know, you know the culture we live in where, you know, shit comes back and <laughs> fucks your career up? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been, like, like, I don't know. Probably ninety percent uh, myself. This conversation and uh, oh, damn cut, out, it. Cut, I, out, cut out ten percent of the <sighs> of the crap. I, I don't want coming back to me. Damn it! See, Everybody, I, everybody's like that though. I mean, dude, I, I, yeah. Well, no. Like, I feel like I give my all on this thing. Like, I feel like I'm totally one hundred percent uncensored. Really? Yeah. That's cool. I don't, I don't hold anything back. I'm not afraid of anything coming back and biting me in the ass. That's cool. Yeah. You just gotta talk freely and and. I, I think once you get that weight off your chest or that you feel like you're limited, like that's what I felt when I did the Terminator podcast, right? I was like, oh, God damn it. I got to talk about Terminator again. Yeah. But I want to talk about, I don't know, uh, the AIDS epidemic. You know, like, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Interesting. I was like, all right, uh, something has to change here. Well, it's more so like the way I talk. Like, you know, I, I probably use a lot more profanities in real life. So, that's uh, fu- yeah. Dude, the idea that, that, Perfect example, right? You and I used to love The Walking Dead, right? And the idea that that show was able to show what it showed, especially season seven, episode one, Mm -hmm. it could go that far, but yet you can't drop fuck in there when you're trying to be as realistic as possible. You're in a zombie apocalypse. There would be so many fucks flying around left and right that it's crazy. That's a good point. It's a shame that show never got picked up by HBO because you know you would yeah. have gotten, especially when Negan came in, because yeah. Negan, that's his that's his thing. Every other word is fuck. Fun little anecdote regarding cursing. Uh, when I was on set uh, for these, so the, the full run of the production was three weeks. It was 12, 12 days of shooting. It was mm-hmm. three weeks. And um, we had child actors on set, you know, because the story was based on, uh, you know, 12-year-old. <laughs> kids uh kids journey yeah and i have such a foul mouth and i had to go through like this whole recalibration in my mind and i did so well of just like not letting just you know because when i'm on set i like to be like ah you know this light like there's a little bit of fuckery going on there like (laughs) you know we need to fix that shit like wow this looks like a looks looks like a massive pile of dicks like i'm just (laughs) so i'm so uh bad about that on set um but we had kids on, so I was like, it was so, so at the beginning, it was so hard for me to speak because like, oh man, that looks like a massive pile of um, crap. Can I say that? <laughs> you know. Uh, and then uh, I got so good at it during the shoot, but then the last day of production, it was like one of the granddaddy scenes of the film. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like two children with cancer talking to each other. And it was like this really emotional thing, and we were like, uh, you know, kind of uh, under the clock uh, a little bit. And uh, it, yeah, it was like two 12 year olds, and uh, I let one massive fuck flesh fly. I was like, oh, yeah, we'll just, oh, fuck, we gotta move this shit. Like, you know, and there's like two kids right there, and like, oh my God, I did so well, and let that one fly out. Uh, and I was pretty embarrassed, but. Um, everyone, everyone was like, "Whoa, I heard freak." You know, I, I, don't, know what you guys are, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, 
Is that like in child labor laws? Like you cannot curse around the kids. I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I haven't read those. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, normally you don't work with kids. Uh, I've actually. So I shot a short film a couple months ago, and it was a child actor. But um, he was cursing in the script, so I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna fucking curse." Um, but uh, yeah, you don't want to. You don't really want to curse in front of kids. I think you want to be. <laughs> I mean, really, I don't think you want to curse that much in general on set. Just you want to maintain professionalism, but like, yeah, you yeah. don't want to be Christian Bale. Yeah, but I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm doing my best. I'm stressed out on set. I'm trying to trying to make things happen. Like sometimes you got a little, got a, a little fuck fly in. Yeah. See, now this is the part where if I was a little more professional and I had these soundboards loaded up, I would have hit a button and <laughs> what don't you fucking understand would have come up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can add that in post, right? <laughs> yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. But dude, look, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that, uh, you came on finally and, uh, I'm excited to see where this particular film goes. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, what's your, what's your, your socials? Uh, so my Instagram is probably like the best way to, find me so uh-huh. that's just my name like at mike kozlenko k-o-z-l-e-n-k-o correct and then uh you know i have a website you know just mike com, and you can check out some of my mediocre work some of my very humble decent work some of my incredible work some of my terrible work <laughs> uh and just some of my work work yeah um you can also, uh, sorry to, sorry to do this to you. You can also search summer in St. Augustine. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Uh, or do uh, it. No, short temper is not available. That's not online. Dude, never, ever going to let you live that down. Mm. Never. Mm. You could become the next Dean Cundy and I'll be like, dude, remember when we did short temper? Yeah. Well, <laughs> luckily that's on a hard drive that I think, uh, is at the bottom of like a cabinet in Austin, Texas. <laughs> so, given I might have it on the interweb somewhere, like on a Google Drive. Yeah, dude, you know, it's all it's all about the journey, man. Yeah, it's all about the journey. It's yeah. and that's part of your journey. Yeah, a very bad little forty-five second film we made on the day we were very bored. Yep, hanging out and blew your head off. <laughs> Wait, yeah, blew your head off. Yeah, that's right. And I walk out. Yeah. With the sunglasses inside. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good shit. Yeah. I miss it. I wish I could see it. I kind of wish it was on YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, I feel uh, you're, you're <laughs> telling me to put it on YouTube, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> gonna Just happen. send me the private link. I'll, <laughs> it'll be, people will be it. They'll see it. And they're like, what? You shot that? You're terrible. You'll never work in this town again. No, they would understand yeah, just based sure. off of the quality. Like, I'm sure it's 480p. That's true. <laughs> so, thanks, man. And uh, that's uh, that's Mike Kozlenko, everybody. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to all y'all. And we'll see you in the next episode.